Good morning. In today's headlines, a direct appeal from President Biden, what the White House is asking Congress to do for Israel and Ukraine, and why Republican presidential candidates are firing back at Biden's primetime speech. Israel's economy minister says IDF has the green light to launch an offensive, and Defense Minister Yoav Gallant orders infantry along the border to be ready. The latest status on the Israel-Hamas war. Uncertainty still prevails in the House as plans to empower interim House Speaker Patrick McHenry are scrapped. Will a floor vote scheduled for today bring clarity? U.S. bases are targeted by drone attacks as tensions escalate in the Middle East. We bring in a geopolitical analyst to give us the details on what this means for American involvement. A tragic story, the bodies of a 12-year-old girl and her 80-year-old grandmother were discovered near the border fence with Gaza. The two were taken hostage by Hamas terrorists on October 7th. Rally-goers in Times Square demand the release of hostages taken by Hamas. Hear what demonstrators told NTD about their wish to bring them home. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning for me. Also, I'm Evelyn Lee. We have made it to Friday, October 20th. Yes, that's right. And one big question that remains now is what about the hostages now that the IDF has the green light? Right. Uh, according to the IDF, up to 200 are still unaccounted for and 30 children are confirmed to be among the hostages. Yeah, the Israeli military says that the majority of those hostages are believed to be alive, but they're still finding bodies in that buffer zone. Let's hope for the best, um, but heading to our top story here, a rare primetime speech from the Oval Office. President Biden now pushing for tens of billions in aid for not only Israel, but also Ukraine. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. Good morning, Iris. Now, you're following the speech from the White House last night. What's the president's main message for Americans? Good morning to you, Evelyn. So we know that President Biden just came back from his wartime visit to Israel on Tuesday. And late last night at 8 p.m., he made a direct appeal to Americans here at home about why the U.S. not only needs to back Israel, but also to continue supporting Ukraine, especially financially, because he says it's a matter of U.S. national security. Here's what he said. Watch. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. That's why tomorrow I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to fund America's national security needs, to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine. It's a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations. The White House today will send a formal funding request to Congress about this aid package that he was talking about. And the amount in that package reportedly will be $60 billion to Ukraine and some $40 billion to Israel, Taiwan and the U.S. southern border. The exact amount is still un unknown and we will find out more about that later today. But the package, the request, is already facing pushback from Republicans, especially among some Republican presidential candidates. Here's what some of them said. Watch. I was frustrated by this speech. We'd be better off having a single focus on Israel 
giving them the resources they need to win this war and then move on to other topics. I think it is wrong to commingle the package of aid to Ukraine and Israel in the same discussion. That's designed to sidestep debate, particularly around the Ukraine aid. So last night, the president did try to make an explicit connection between the two wars by saying that both Russia and Hamas are trying to annihilate a neighboring democracy. However, we know that the U.S. has already sent some $75 billion to Ukraine, and the support for even more Ukraine aid has been waning, not only among the American public, as we saw in the polls, but also among Republican members of Congress. So it will be an uphill battle for the White House to get congressional approval for this overall package. And that is why the, Mer the White House is tying up more aid to Ukraine with aid to Israel and some funding for the border so that maybe more Republicans can come on board. Evelyn. Tens of billions of dollars. That's definitely a major financial commitment from the U.S. if it goes through. Now, Iris, tell us more about what else Americans should know amid the war in the Middle East. What else uh, is the administration saying? So in addition to what President Biden called for last night, which is more aid to Israel and Ukraine, the Biden administration also announced on Thursday that it's now allowing Israeli citizens to come to the United States, travel to here for up to 90 days without a visa. So that is an effort to help more Israeli people flee the war happening in Israel. And meanwhile, the State Department yesterday also issued what they called a global caution alert for Americans overseas. And they said it's due to terrorist attacks, potential terrorist attacks around the world, and violent actions targeting U.S. citizens amid tensions in the Middle East. Evelyn. Mm, very good updates. Thank you so much, Iris, for that. The White House deleted a post on social media after receiving sharp criticism of its content. It was a picture of President Biden interacting with special forces troops in Israel without obscuring their identities. The White House account deleted the photo soon after sharing. However, the picture had already received several thousand likes. Critics say the photo could endanger troops by showing their identities. The White House responded saying they regret the error and any issues it may have caused. Israel pounded the Gaza Strip with airstrikes yesterday as Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant or ordered infantry troops along the border to prepare for a ground assault. Gallant urged soldiers to get organized and to be ready to see Gaza from the inside. Israel's economy minister said yesterday that IDF has the green light to launch an offensive. The announcement coincides with reports of a U.S. delivery of roughly one million rounds of ammunition. There was no clear indication of when the ground assault will start. Here's IDF spokesperson Jonathan Conriquez on the current status. We continue to strike uh, Hamas targets. We continue to hunt their commanders. We continue to apply pressure on their military infrastructure and to uh, mitigate their military capabilities to launch attacks against us. We've thwarted a few attacks. The IDF has indeed done several tactical incursions into the Gaza Strip, the perimeter close to the border, with the purpose of finding parts, bodies, and any other piece of information that could help us solve and understand the fate of all Israelis that are currently either dead or missing. Uh, there's still more than 100 Israelis that are 
unaccounted for. No resource is spared in order to uh, shed light on the situation. Uh, we're collecting the intelligence, understanding who is abducted, who is missing, who is dead. Hopefully, and we have said this before, we are going to bring all of those hostages back, just as we are going to dismantle Hamas and win this war. The first trucks of aid to Gaza are expected to go in today. Egypt's president has agreed to let 20 trucks with humanitarian aid through the Rafah border crossing. Workers were seen removing cement blocks from the entrance yesterday. Egypt and Israel have been negotiating over the entry of fuel for hospitals. The IDF says Hamas has already stolen fuel from UN facilities. And New York Governor Kathy Hochul is in Israel this week. She met with diplomatic leaders and visited communities devastated by the Hamas terror attacks. Hochul said yesterday that the Hamas attack on Israel was, quote, akin to the Holocaust. These were not people who got in harm's way during a military conflict between armies. These are people that were targeted. There was an intentionality which is so cruel and depraved. And to the people who are protesting, I know there's been anti-Semitism for a long time. People reject Israel's right to exist. I don't agree with that. And they have a right to peacefully protest. But there can be no denial of what happened or any kind of equivalency with this particular attack because it was so heinous. While Hochul was in the Middle East of her visit, in the middle of her visit, her 87-year-old father died Wednesday night. Hochul is the latest Western leader to visit Jerusalem to show support for Israel and to try to negotiate a way to secure the release of hostages taken by Hamas. The New York governor also addressed humanitarian aid to people in Gaza, saying it's something she is concerned about. Meanwhile, another high-profile high governor, California's Gavin Newsom will also make a short stop in Israel today on his way to China. The governor wrote on X that he'll be meeting with those impacted by the horrific terrorist attacks and offering California support. Stay with us. Will the third time be the charm in today's floor vote for House Speaker? We have the latest on what lawmakers are saying. A Maryland Circuit Court judge was shot at his home last night. We have the details. Newly appointed California Senator LaFonza Butler says she will not be running for a full term. The race for the Senate seat will feature several high-profile Democrats. Get the story in a minute. It's good to have you back with us. The drama in electing a new House Speaker continues. The resolution to empower interim House Speaker Patrick McHenry is out, and another floor vote is in. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on what people can expect later today. Representative Jim Jordan says he's still in the game. I'm still running for Speaker, and I plan to go to the floor uh, and get the votes and win this race. The congressman says he'll seek common ground with those who voted against him and adds a third floor vote will happen Friday morning. Jordan said the pitch to empower interim Speaker McHenry was made to members to, quote, lower the temperature and get back to work, but they decided not to move forward with the plan. Representative Matt Gates said he doesn't support using temporary powers for Congressman McHenry, speaking on MSNBC. 
I was there to make the substantive argument that speaker light is a bad idea, just like Bud Light. Gates also commented on what has been gained by pushing out former House Speaker McCarthy in the first place, speaking on CNN. We're shaking up Washington, D.C. We're breaking the fever. And you know what? It's messy. But the only reason people think there's chaos in this town right now is because the special interests aren't in control anymore. Ousted House Speaker McCarthy had something to say about that. The whole country, I think, would scream at Matt Gates right now. Remember, it was a crazy eights led by Matt Gates and every single Democrat that put us into this situation. Congressman Michael Waltz chimed in on that note. Where I come from as a veteran, if you're going to blow a bridge, you better have another one to cross. And those eight clearly didn't have another one to cross before they blew this bridge. Congresswoman Jen Kiggins says the House is at a standstill and a change in tactics is what's needed. It's like if we're digging a hole and you keep hitting rock, like dig in a different place. You know, we can't keep doing what we've been doing. Kiggins says appropriations bills need passing and support for Israel and condemnation of Hamas need addressing. Representative Byron Donald says you could read the room and the votes to empower McHenry just weren't there. For Donald's, Jordan's still the man for the job. I'm still behind Jim, still support Jim. He has my vote, but he's got to make a decision on winning. Jordan still appears to have a steep hill to climb to clinch the 217 votes needed to win the gavel. Most of the 22 Republicans who voted against him on the second ballot Wednesday have said they are firm in their position. The House has been without a speaker for more than two weeks after Kevin McCarthy's ouster. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Let's delve further into the impasse of selecting a Speaker of the House. Lawrence Wilson, a reporter for the Epic Times, joins us live to discuss this. Good morning, Lawrence. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Can Representative Jim Jordan overcome resistance? And if so, how? Well, it's still possible, but it's looking less and less likely all the time. What he needs to do is to convince the so-called holdouts that he really is the guy who can unite this conference and get the Congress back to work. Now, that's not easy to do because they're very entrenched, as we just heard, and Jordan has been seen as a polarizing figure. Now, he's going to make his case today at 8 a.m. in a press conference trying to get his message out to those 22 and to the whole Congress and to the world. And we'll see how effective that is at 10 o'clock when there is a third ballot scheduled. And it's critical that there be a path forward on this. The House has never been without a speaker this long mid-session. How will the lack of a speaker affect the looming government funding deadline in November? Well, it's making it look less and less likely, or more and more likely, that there is going to be a, a, another continuing resolution. Now, Congress has about 30 days now, just under, to pass the remaining eight appropriations bills that's in the House, then reconcile them with the Senate. That takes usually a lot of time, and they don't have much left. So looks like another CR is in the works. Right. And this is two failed votes now. Representative Rokana is saying that there may be a Democrat vote for someone, you know, there, there may be an actual coalition to get Hakeem Jeffries in with some Republican support. Do you think that this is expected? No, I think uh, it would take f at least five Republicans. And I don't think there are five Republicans who are going to elect a Democratic speaker. Now, more likely is that 
Democrats might say, well, we'll get behind a moderate Republican in exchange for some concessions, like more seats on the Rules Committee. But even that seems unlikely. Uh, Republicans really want to work this out amongst themselves, and it looks like that's what they're going to continue to do. So let's talk about Israel. Will the U.S. be able to send this much-needed aid to the country that's at war right now without a Speaker of the House? Well, yes, for a short time. The president has emergency powers under the War Powers Act that give him 30 days, basically, and he does have some funding available to do that. We also support Israel on an ongoing basis, so nothing's changing there. But once you get beyond the 30 days, then Congress would have to come into the picture in order to provide additional support. So that attack took place, started the war on October 7th. So that gives you a rough idea of what that runway looks like. So if we do go into this situation where the House is not able to get a speaker, what happens at that point? They just have to keep trying. <laughs> They're just paralyzed. They have to work this out. Either the Republicans have to come together and agree on a speaker, or as has been suggested, uh, it gets some coalition, unlikely, but Congress has to solve this problem. The House has to solve this problem on its own. There will be no action on the House floor until that happens. Well, Lawrence Wilson, reporter for the Epic Times, thank you for the analysis on this. My pleasure. A Maryland Circuit Court judge was fatally shot in the driveway of his home Thursday night. Circuit Court Judge Andrew Wilkinson was found with apparent gunshot wounds at around 8 p.m. The sheriff's office said Wilkinson was taken to a medical center where he died of his injuries. It's investigating the fatal shooting. Wilkinson was an associate judge for the Washington County Circuit Court since January 2020. Former Maryland delegate Neil Parrott said he was a well-liked and respected member of the community with a contagious smile. Newly appointed California Senator LaFonza Butler will not be running for a full term. She will avoid the 2024 election that features several high-profile Democrats. In a series of posts on X Thursday, Butler said she spent the last 16 days considering what kind of life she wants to have, service she wants to offer, and voice she wants to put forward. She decided not to run for a full term after considering those questions. California Governor Gavin Newsom tapped Butler to fill the seat held by the late Senator Dianne Feinstein earlier this month. Three high-profile high Democrats are in the race for the Senate seat next November. There are Congress members Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, and Barbara Lee. Attorney Sidney Powell has agreed to testify at former President Trump's RICO trial. The agreement is part of a plea deal she made with Georgia prosecutors. NTD's legal correspondent has the details. How do you plead to the six counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with performance of election duties? Guilty. Attorney Sidney Powell pleading guilty to misdemeanor charges in exchange for getting more serious charges dismissed. The original felony charges against her and 18 co-defendants included racketeering and conspiracy to commit election fraud. On Thursday, she pleaded guilty to six misdemeanors. All six counts accuse her of conspiring to intentionally interfere with the performance of election duties. She must pay a $6,000 fine, serve a maximum sentence of six years probation, and pay $2,700 in restitution for damaged election equipment. 
Under the original indictment, Powell was accused of copying data and software from voting machines in Coffee County without permission. Powell became known for using the phrase, release the Kraken, referring to what she believed to be a treasure trove of election fraud evidence in 2020. President Trump won by a landslide. We are going to prove it and we are going to reclaim the United States of America for the people who vote for freedom. As part of the deal, Powell must truthfully testify in the trials of former President Trump and other co-defendants, give up certain rights, and admit to some facts. And are you pleading guilty today because you agree that there is a sufficient factual basis, that there are enough facts that support this plea of guilty? I do. Powell's plea came just days before she was set to go to trial beginning on Monday. Other parts of the deal include writing a letter of apology to citizens of Georgia, providing a recorded statement of the events that occurred, providing all documents requested by the prosecutor, and not communicating with witnesses, co-defendants, or the media. Coming up, U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell discusses the economy's future and the effects of the Middle East conflict. We'll have more on Powell's speech. What are students really reading and are parents aware of the explicit content in schools? Lawmakers debate the issue. Are universities cracking down on the free speech of conservative students? NTD spoke with the legal firm Alliance Defending Freedom about a First Amendment case. Get that story after the break. Welcome back. U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell yesterday gave his first speech since uh, Israel-Hamas war broke out. He talked about the economy, future interest rate hikes, and the Middle East conflict. Here with us live is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, good morning. What were his comments on the Israel-Hamas conflict? Yeah, so, you know, he acknowledged that uh, geopolitical tensions are highly elevated right now and that uh, they pose risks to global economic activity. Um, he also acknowledged that government spending could substantially rise uh, with the wars, you know, in Ukraine and Israel. But he added that these wars are, are not really something that's going to affect the central bank's monetary policy decisions. Uh, the Fed is watching these developments closely uh, for, you know, for what he's going to do uh, in the future. Uh, but Powell also shared uh, with the audience uh, on a personal level that uh, he really found the attack on Israel horrifying and he expressed you know, concern over potential loss of more in innocent lives uh, in the future. Right, and Don, even federal officials were saying that, federal reserve officials, we're just saying that this probably won't hurt the economy, this war, unless it has a spillover effect into other nations. So what were the comments on the U.S. economy and the outlook on future interest rate hikes? Well, he said that uh, economic growth uh, in the U.S. has uh, consistently been doing even better than expected this year. Uh, he pointed uh, to the strong retail sales data that we got uh, earlier this week as evidence. He says um, that forecasters also expect gross domestic product, GDP, uh, to come in very strong for the third quarter. But, you know, he, he added that uh, historically speaking, you know, in order for inflation to actually come down, um, it seems we may need a period of slower economic growth and a bit more weakening in the job market. 
Um, but as for future rate hikes, it seems markets believe that uh, the Fed is done raising its benchmark interest rates. But of course, Powell himself is not going to say that definitively. He still left additional action uh, from the Fed on the table. Looks like there could be some good news for Q3. Anything else for us, Don? Sure. Uh, the SAG-AFTRA strike uh, has reached almost 100 days. Top actors, uh, including George Clooney, want to help end the strike by offering $150 million to the union. Uh, the money would be earmarked for paying higher health benefits for union members. Clooney told, told the, the Hollywood publication Deadline that the industry's top earners want to be part of ending the strike. Clooney said, uh, quote, we think it's fair for us to pay more into the union. So SAG-AFTRA has not uh, responded to a request for a comment just yet. Um, but, you know, other than that, uh, I think that's all from me this morning. Good, uh, good updates as always. Thank you so much, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Yeah, thank you as always. And the U.S. Army private who fled to North Korea in July has been charged. The U.S. Army charged Travis King with desertion, among a series of other alleged crimes. In September, King was released from North Korean custody and returned to the U.S. after crossing into North Korea without authorization. In a statement, King's mother said she loves her son unconditionally and is extremely concerned about his mental health. Before fleeing to North Korea, King was released from detention in South Korea for an incident that happened in 2022. He allegedly pushed and punched a person in the face at a club in Seoul. King was set to board a flight to Texas to face disciplinary action, but instead joined a security tour where he fled into North Korea. What's on the shelves of our school libraries? Lawmakers raise serious questions about the content that children are being exposed to. And today's Jason Perry has the details, and please be advised, the following content is graphic in nature. If these books are too inappropriate for adults, and they are certainly inappropriate for children. In a hearing held by the House Subcommittee on Early Childhood, Elementary, and Secondary Education, lawmakers examined the books in American school libraries. Representative Burgess Owens started with a book that has been banned. One of our nation's most consequential books banning was done by the Supreme Court in 1963 when officially mandated Bible reading. This book is banned from all of us. Anything that deals with federal, it's no longer can see it. Can no longer read it. He said because of that, generations of Americans have no knowledge of the tenets upon which the country was founded. He then gave a sample of books that are available to school-age children. Genderqueer features pictures of oral sex performed on sex toys. This book is gay, provides a how-to guide for strangers to, for sex on gay sex apps. Out of the Darkness contains rape. Lucky contains rape. All Boys Aren't Blue contains underage incest. Lawn Boy contains a passage of 10-year-old boys performing oral sex on each other. And this parent explained the impact these books can have on children. Actually, my second grader last year was read one of these books off the shelf. Um, and he was very uncomfortable and actually had to leave the library and ask to go to the bathroom because he was uncomfortable. I don't think we should ever put a seven-year-old in that predicament. However, Representative Suzanne Bonamici said there are so many definitions of pornography and that who is defining it is part of the problem. And then she shared a different view on one of these books in particular. 
but we really need to highlight the danger of ignoring or worse, erasing history by removing uh, school library books that portray representations of marginalized people, culture, experiences. Books like All Boys Aren't Blue, a captivating memoir. It's affirming for young LGBTQ readers, especially those who are black. Max Eden, a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, pointed to a potential issue within the American Library Association, which recommends certain books for schools. He said the ALA's president is a self-proclaimed Marxist who said school libraries need to be sites of socialist organizing. Jason Perry, NTD News. Are you willing to pay $5,000 for your free speech? That's what a legal firm says a public university charged a pro-life student group for security costs at their event. And today's Daniel Monahan spoke with Alliance Defending Freedom about the case. The case concerns the University of New Mexico and Students for Life of America. The pro-life group's local chapter invited Students for Life of America President Kristen Hawkins to speak in April. The university said it wanted a security fee due to potential protests and possible violence. The student group didn't think there would be any protests, but didn't feel that they should have to pay, even if there were. Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Counsel Tyson Langhofer. Our speech is going to be more expensive because other people don't like it. And that's unconstitutional. The government can't charge people uh, money simply because other people disagree with their speech. That's a precedent Langhofer says the Supreme Court has held for a very long time. In the end, Langhofer says the event went off without a hitch. No violence, no protests. But he says the university still sent the students' group a bill for over $5,000 for the 30 officers it had there. And typically what's happening on these college campuses is they're charging fees to conservative uh, speakers, to pro-life speakers, to religious speakers, because those are the type of speakers that are being protested on campus. So it's the, uh, these kind of minority voices that are being uh, suppressed because they're having to pay for their speech when the other voices on other issues, such as the pro-choice speakers, they're not being charged the same types of fees because that nobody is protesting their speech. Langhofer says a university is supposed to be a marketplace of ideas. You have their pro-life students who want to bring a pro-life message to campus, but it's their, their ability to do so is burdened because they are having to pay a very large amount of money, which they don't have, uh, in order to bring a, a, a pro-life speaker to campus. And that's the type of a restriction that the, that the Constitution doesn't allow. It doesn't allow the government to burden a disfavored speech. Langhofer also brings up the role some universities may play in instigating such protests to begin with. You have universities making these statements beforehand about certain speakers coming to campus and they foment all of this unrest on campus and then it actually does disrupt it. And, and then they charge the student group for, uh, for the disruption that's really caused by the university community. The attorney says universities should be promoting the freedom to speak and the freedom to debate really important issues and not giving in to what he calls the mob. The small minority of voices who want to disrupt 
peaceful speech with violence. Uh, unfortunately, universities are giving in to that type of those types of demands and allowing them to engage in in violence and other unlawful activity rather than uh, protecting speakers and saying, look, this is the type of education that we want you to have is to be able to engage with people on different sides of the, of the, the aisle. Alliance Defending Freedom sent a letter to the university last week informing it that the security fee violated the student group and national pro-life organization's First Amendment rights. NTD reached out to the University of New Mexico. We are still waiting to hear back from them. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Just ahead, U.S. bases targeted by drone attacks as tensions escalate across the Middle East. We hear from a geopolitical analyst on how this will affect U.S. involvement. The EU has expressed deep concerns over security following recent attacks by Hamas terrorist supporters in Europe. It's now taking steps to limit the impact of the war between Israel and Hamas. That's after the break. Welcome back. U.S. forces came under attack this week with drones targeting bases in Iraq and Syria. And just yesterday, the U.S. Navy intercepted several missiles and drones launched from Yemen, possibly on their way to Israel. For, for more on how to understand these events, we're bringing in Brandon Weikert. He's a geopolitical analyst and author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. Good morning. It's good to see you as always, Brandon. Now, first, what do we know in terms of who is responsible for the drone attacks in Syria and Iraq? Well, in Syria and Iraq, there's been no official statement made about who's responsible, but I can tell you with almost 100% certainty that this was Iran, that the bases that were attacked are U.S. military facilities in Syria and Iraq that are along the supply lines that Hezbollah and Iran, that excuse me, Iran uses to supply Hezbollah. And we've already seen an escalation, as I've been warning about, we've already seen an escalation from Hezbollah in uh, the north of Israel. Uh, just last night, they attacked the border, a uh, border city of Israel, Hezbollah did. And I think that the reason those U.S. bases were attacked is because they're basically in the way of Iranian resupply missions going into Hezbollah as Hezbollah readies to to open up another front against Israel. So what were your first thoughts when you heard about these attacks? What's the significance here? Uh, well, I, it was deja vu all over again. Remember, this is what we went through after, uh, or excuse me, that, that prompted the Trump administration to assassinate Qasem Soleimani, the former head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, Quds Force. Uh, and so this is what the Iranians do. Once there's a larger issue at stake in the region, they will start targeting all of the American allies and ultimately America itself, the Houthis in the south and in Yemen, fired that missile fusillade toward Israel that our Navy intercepted yesterday. This is all part of a coordinated strike by Iran against the United States and its partners in the region. So talking about the strike, the drones and missiles from Yemen, how concerning do you find these recent attacks in terms of um, an escalation of, uh, of the war, for instance? 
Well, it's concerning and predictable. As I warned in my book, this is exactly what was going to happen if we didn't get the Abraham Accords linking Israeli and Sunni Arab power, specifically Saudi Arabian power, together to contain Iran. And unfortunately, that deal was never finalized fully because Biden, the Biden administration took over and they didn't believe in it the way the Trump administration did. Now, here we are. So escalation is now at hand. It's going to get worse. And unfortunately, if we're not careful, the United States is a hair's breadth away from being involved in not only a regional war that Iran is orchestrating, but that war will trigger a World War III. Well, and on that note, um, you, you, you're saying that basically Iran is behind all of this. There is another, yes. what about the Lebanon border then um, with the Hezbollah? How big is the risk that this will also escalate um, with Israel? Well, you have to understand it's a it's a series of escalations. So the first the first escalation was the Hamas attack against Israel a couple weeks ago. Now you've got uh, the possibility of a second front opening up from Hezbollah. That second front to the north of Israel from Hezbollah is going to be the really damaging thing because Hezbollah's got a massive and growing arsenal of precision guided munitions that the head of Hezbollah Nasrallah already said in 2020 they're going to use those precision missiles to target the ammonium nitrate facilities at the Haifa port in Israel to basically create a mini dirty bomb and knock out Haifa's usefulness to the Israelis. That'll be a huge economic blow to Israel at this time if that happens. And then the, the Hezbollah is also going to use those missiles to attack key infrastructure and uh, economic zones in Israel to basically break Israel society and its economy as the war with Hamas in the south gets underway. So this is a this is a very nightmare scenario. So what about the U.S. and how do you think their reaction should be? Well, what the U.S. should have been doing immediately, I mean, we, we did the right thing. We moved in those two aircraft carrier battle groups. Um, we've got naval assets in position to knock out those errant missiles and those uh, missiles from uh, Yemen. Uh, but we're also going to need significant air power in the region because what's going to happen, I think, is Israel's going to need our help in the air to knock out Iranian-backed supply chains going to Hezbollah. We can prevent a significant second front from opening up by Hezbollah if the Americans can help the Israeli Air Force knock out those Iranian supply chains in Iraq, in Syria, and then the Israeli Air Force can take out the facilities in Lebanon itself. But it's going to require a team effort, and right now it doesn't seem like the United States is much willing to do more than it already has. Hmm. I think you offered some really interesting analysis. Thanks for your take. Brandon you. Weikert, I appreciate it. Thank you. The European Union initiated steps yesterday to limit the impact of the war between Israel and Hamas on the bloc. The move comes as security tensions grow after a firebomb attack on a Berlin synagogue, along with killings in Belgium and France by suspected terrorists. Spain activated a crisis mechanism to speed up decision-making and coordination between the 27 member countries, its institutions, and major partners. Spain currently holds the EU's rotating presidency. Here's EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen on the conflict. We have seen the Arab streets fill with rage all across the region, so the risk of a regional spillover is real. And this is exactly what Hamas was hoping to achieve. 
And this can derail the recent and historic rapprochement between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Officials from across the EU have expressed concerns about a rise in anti-Semitic attacks and online radicalization. Officials also stressed the need to speed up deportation of people who might pose a public danger. But calls for increased security are creating concern. Some say the proposed solutions could undermine free movement and the right to free assembly in Europe. Meanwhile, several countries are introducing border checks to counter rising tensions over the Israel-Hamas war. Those include Italy, Denmark and Sweden. France intends to keep checks in place until at least next May, citing new terrorist threats. More police have been deployed in Belgium, France and Germany. Difficult balance indeed. Yeah, an attack on the synagogue, that is definitely not called for. Uh, yeah, and also in light of Germany's history, it's definitely um, alarming to see. We're going to go to break here. A tragic story coming up. The bodies of a 12-year-old girl and her 80-year-old grandmother were discovered near the Gaza border fence. That's after being taken hostage by Hamas terrorists on October 7th. Rally-goers in Times Square demand the release of hostages taken by Hamas. Hear what demonstrators told NTD about their wish to bring them home. We're glad to have you back with us. And now we're all going to hear a tragic story coming out of Israel. The bodies of Noya Don, a 12-year-old girl with autism, and her 80-year-old grandmother, Carmela Don, were discovered near the border fence with Gaza. They were residents of a kibbutz near the border with Gaza. They went missing following the October 7th attacks by Hamas and were initially believed to have been taken hostage into Gaza. And there's still no word on the three other family members still missing, a father and two kids, 12 and 16 years old. Here's the story. Following a family gathering on the night of October 6th, 12-year-old Noya Dan slept over at her grandmother's place in a nearby kibbutz but nobody thought this was the last time they would ever see them. On October 7th, the Hamas terrorist group stormed into nearby Israeli towns, brutally slaughtered families and abducted hundreds in an unprecedented surprise attack during a major Jewish holiday. Noya and Carmela Dan were two of the hostages taken. Abby Own is a relative of Noya and Carmela. She said her family got together for Carmela's 80th birthday on Tuesday to give each other strength. At the time, they thought Carmela was still alive. I can't imagine that the, the nightmare got worse, but it did. We not only now have two of them that have been murdered by Hamas, but we are still fighting for three of them. Noya's mother shared with Israel's Cannes public broadcaster Noya's final voice memos as they exchanged messages on the morning of October 7th in the midst of Hamas attacks. Noya was a Harry Potter fan. The author of the series, J.K. Rowling, reposted a photo of the girl on Monday when her whereabouts were still unknown. Rowling wrote, Kidnapping children is despicable and wholly unjustifiable. For obvious reasons, this picture has hit home with me. The, um, the estimation 
is that they were uh, got murdered after they got abducted when they crossed the border to Gaza. Maybe because they were too slow. Maybe, you know, because Carmela is 80 and she has heart problem. So she's walking pretty, you know, she walks pretty slow. And uh, Noya, when she gets stressed out because she's in the autistic spectrum, uh, she starts yelling and she usually uh, stays in the same place. And we're afraid that this was the reason. The Israeli government now faces the challenge of identifying and cataloging the large number of victims. Many Israelis have suffered losses. We can't grieve in peace because we have to continue to fight. The family had to explain to their children that they were at war and that their loved ones were brutally killed. At the end of the conversation, we said to them, we don't hate anyone. We are not dealing with rage right now. We are dealing with hope and we're fighting. And I believe that's the only choice right now and the only thing that we can tell our children. Around 1,300 people were killed in Hamas's initial attacks on Israel on October 7th. The Israeli military said on Thursday they believe 206 people have been taken hostage. So incredibly heartbreaking. Yeah, my hearts go out to the families. Yeah, and uh, coming to New York City, hundreds of people gathered in Times Square yesterday to demand the release of hostages taken by Hamas. U.S. officials say nearly 200 people are held captive after the terrorist group's October 7th attack. The State Department confirmed 32 Americans are dead. The rally was organized by the nonprofit Israeli American Council. It represents Israeli Americans in the U.S. And today spoke to some of those attending to learn more about the call to action. Billboards in Times Square displayed the faces of those thought to be held hostage by Hamas, from young to old, as the crowd demanded bring them home. Israel's UN Ambassador Gilad Erdan criticized the UN Secretary General in his speech for a planned visit to the Rafah border crossing from Egypt to Gaza Friday. Right now, sadly, tragically, it seems that his top priority is giving aid to the terrorists, to the terrorists who abducted our, our loved ones. Shame on him! Shame on him! Actor Yuval David, a dual Israeli-American citizen, told NTD that terrorist organizations have no place in a civilized society and should be demolished. And it doesn't make sense. That is not freedom fighting. So anybody out there who thinks that you can defend Hamas that you can defend Hamas as a resistance group, you are horribly wrong. They came for us and they can come for you. Guy Yer came from North Carolina to show his support. First of all, I would like to see all the hostages be returned. I would like to see a good resolution come to both parties to eliminate the bloodshed, the unnecessary bloodshed, and just come to a resolution and put this behind us. The first thing is these hostages need to be released before you can even address resolving the conflict. Certainly violence is not going to in any way resolve it. There has to be rational discussions and ways to go about it. But a resolution doesn't seem likely. Israel has pledged to dismantle Hamas and its military capabilities. Hamas and other affiliated terrorist groups have vowed to destroy Israel with the U.S. posturing naval fleets in the Middle East and readying 2,000 of its best troops for war. Senate leader Chuck Schumer declared the U.S. has Israel's back. We will not abandon you. We will not leave you. We will fight with you side by side 
until the threat of Hamas is totally eliminated. And every hostage is brought home. President Biden is under pressure to leverage every diplomatic tool at his disposal to secure their release. I've actually been very impressed with uh, President Biden's response publicly to everything that's happened. And I think whether you're on the left, you're on the right, you're in the middle, I think everybody has pretty much come together to universally support Israel in the face of terrorists. Just everything that's happened is unspeakable and President Biden and pretty much every, pretty much everyone in, uh, in the American government has been very staunch supporting Israel. We're gonna do whatever it takes. Israel's the right to defend themselves, which they do. Um, and it makes us all very proud to be not just Jews, but Americans as well. Senator Jim Risch, the top Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said Wednesday that 10 of the Hamas hostages were U.S. citizens. No official list of U.S. hostages has been released. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. It's good that they're able to voice their concerns in a peaceful way and not have any conflicts there. Yeah, and like uh, Mr. Kushner said, it's good to see the unity in the government in this case as well. Yeah, and I mean, the United States and Israel have something in common. They're both victims of terrorist attacks, and they've both taken a very strong stance at eliminating terrorism. Exactly. Um, it looks like it's 8 a.m. on the dot, so we're starting the second part of our broadcast now. A direct appeal from President Biden, find out what the White House is asking Congress to do for Israel and Ukraine and why Republican presidential candidates are firing back. Congressman Jim Jordan will hold a press conference at 8 a.m. this morning. The meeting comes ahead of a third floor vote for House Speaker later in the day. The Israeli military has been given the green light to go into Gaza. What will happen to hostages if troops go in? We ask a brigadier general and defense analyst. Rally-goers in Times Square demand the release of hostages taken by Hamas. Hear what demonstrators told NTD about their wish to bring them home. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. And I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Friday, again, October 20th. In our top news today, a rare primetime speech from the Oval Office. President Biden now pushing for tens of billions in aid for not only Israel, but also Ukraine. We hear from NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. So we know that President Biden just came back from his wartime visit to Israel on Tuesday and late last night at 8 p.m. He made a direct appeal to Americans here at home about why the U.S. not only needs to back Israel, but also to continue supporting Ukraine, especially financially, because he says it's a matter of U.S. national security. Here's what he said. Watch. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, if we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. That's why tomorrow I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to fund America's national security needs, to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine. It's a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations. 
The White House today will send a formal funding request to Congress about this aid package that he was talking about. And the amount in that package reportedly will be $60 billion to Ukraine and some $40 billion to Israel, Taiwan and the U.S. southern border. The exact amount is still un unknown and we will find out more about that later today. But the package, the request, is already facing pushback from Republicans, especially among some Republican presidential candidates. Here's what some of them said. Watch. I was frustrated by this speech. It would be better off having a single focus on Israel, giving them the resources they need to win this war, and then move on to other topics. I think it is wrong to co-mingle the package of aid to Ukraine and Israel in the same discussion. That's designed to sidestep debate, particularly around the Ukraine aid. So last night, the president did try to make an explicit connection between the two wars by saying that both Russia and Hamas are trying to annihilate a neighboring democracy. However, we know that the U.S. has already sent some $75 billion to Ukraine, and the support for even more Ukraine aid has been waning, not only among the American public, as we saw in the polls, but also among Republican members of Congress. So it will be an uphill battle for the White House to get congressional approval for this overall package. And that is why the, Mer the White House is tying up more aid to Ukraine with aid to Israel and some funding for the border so that maybe more Republicans can come on board. Evelyn. Mm, very good updates. Thank you so much, Iris, for that. New York Governor Kathy Hochul is in Israel this week. She met with diplomatic leaders and visited communities devastated by the Hamas terror attacks. Hochul said yesterday that the Hamas attack on Israel was, quote, akin to the Holocaust. These were not people who got in harm's way during a military conflict between armies. These are people that were targeted. There was an intentionality which is so cruel and depraved. And to the people who are protesting, I know there's been anti-Semitism for a long time. People reject Israel's right to exist. I don't agree with that. And they have a right to peacefully protest. But there can be no denial of what happened or any kind of equivalency with this particular attack because it was so heinous. While Hochul was in the middle of her visit, her 87-year-old father died Wednesday night. Hochul is the latest Western leader to visit Jerusalem to show support for Israel and to try to negotiate a way to secure the release of hostages taken by Hamas. The New York governor also addressed humanitarian aid to people in Gaza, saying it's something she is concerned about. Meanwhile, another high-profile governor, California's Gavin Newsom, will also make a short stop in Israel today on his way to China. The governor wrote on X that he'll be meeting with those impacted by the horrific terrorist attacks and offering California support. Earlier, I spoke to Lawrence Wilson, a reporter for the Epic Times, to delve further into the impasse of selecting a Speaker of the House. Can Representative Jim Jordan overcome resistance, and if so, how? Well, it's still possible, but it's looking less and less likely all the time. What he needs to do is to convince the so-called holdouts that he really is the guy who can unite this conference and get the Congress back to work. Now, that's not easy to do because they're very entrenched, as we just heard, and Jordan has been seen as a polarizing figure. How will the lack of a speaker affect the looming government funding deadline in November? 
Well, it's making it look less and less likely, or more and more likely, that there is going to be a, a, another continuing resolution. Now, Congress has about 30 days now, just under, to pass the remaining eight appropriations bills that's in the House, then reconcile them with the Senate. That takes usually a lot of time, and they don't have much left. So looks like another CR is in the works. Right. And this is two failed votes now. Representative Rokana is saying that there may be a Democrat vote for someone, you know, there, there may be an actual coalition to get Hakeem Jeffries in with some Republican support. Do you think that this is expected? No, I think uh, it would take f at least five Republicans. And I don't think there are five Republicans who are going to elect a Democratic speaker. Now, more likely is that Democrats might say, well, we'll get behind a moderate Republican exchange for some concessions, like more seats on the Rules Committee. But even that seems unlikely. Uh, Republicans really want to work this out amongst themselves, and it looks like that's what they're going to continue to do. Jim Jordan is holding a conference right now, and we will have more on that later on the show. The House will meet to vote today at 10 a.m. Eastern. A Maryland Circuit Court judge was fatally shot in the driveway of his home last night. Circuit Court Judge Andrew Wilkinson was found with apparent gunshot wounds around 8 p.m. local time. The sheriff's office said Wilkinson was taken to a medical center where he died of his injuries. The fatal shooting is being investigated. Wilkinson was an associate judge for the Washington County Circuit Court since January 2020. Former Maryland delegate Neil Parrott said he was a well-liked and respected community member with a contagious smile. Just ahead, Israel's economy minister says IDF has the green light to launch an offensive. And Defense Minister Yoav Gallant orders infantry along the border to be ready. A possible invasion of Gaza nears this as Israelis evacuate from a town near its border with Lebanon amid heavy fire. A brigadier general gives us some insight. Rallygoers in Times Square demand the release of hostages taken by Hamas. Hear what demonstrators told NTD about their wish to bring them home after the break. Welcome back. Israel pounded the Gaza Strip with airstrikes yesterday as Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant ordered infantry troops along the border to prepare for a ground assault. Gallant urged soldiers to get organized and to be ready to see Gaza from the inside. Israel's economy minister said yesterday that IDF has the green light to launch an offensive. The announcement coincides with reports of a U.S. delivery of roughly one million rounds of ammunition. There was no clear indication of when the ground assault will start. And staying on the topic of the Israel conflict, we're bringing in Brigadier General Amir Avivi, the founder of the chairman of Israel Defense and Security Forum, for more updates. So great to have you with us, Brigadier General Amir Avivi. What do you think is going to happen now that Israel has the green light to invade Gaza to the hostages in these tunnels? Well, we understand what are the goals of the war. The goals of the war are to completely destroy Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and dismantle, dismantle all the terror infrastructure inside Gaza. There is only one way to do it. It's maneuvering 
It's a ground incursion into the Gaza Strip, getting control of this uh, area and step by step dismantling the whole terror infrastructure. This will take months. Now, talking about the hostages, the hostages are inside the area where we're going to maneuver. So basically, by going in, we're all also going to solve the issue of the hostages. We'll have to move forward, reach the places where they are and liberate them. This is not the classic hostage situation where you negotiate. We're not going to negotiate. We're going to destroy this organization and free our hostages. And you say liberate the hostages. What does that look like? Does that involve some precision strikes? Well, uh, you know, I'll give the example of Saturday. Saturday, uh, we had uh, several incidents two weeks ago where, where terrorists took hostages inside Israel, in the Israeli houses. So you have to be in the place. Then there is a, a negotiation with the hostages. And at the end of the day, or you liberate them, or you storm in and, 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 and uh, destroy the, the terrorists. And uh, I think it will look much more like this than the classic negotiations that go for a year or two with, with uh, people who abducted uh, our, our citizens. This is not the scenario. We're going in and we're going to bring them home. Hopefully those hostages can be returned safely to their families. Israel is now evacuating a town near its border with Lebanon amid heavy fire there. Do you expect the invasion of Gaza to intensify the, to intensify the fighting on that front? So I think uh, Iran is in a big dilemma. They launched uh, the attack with Hamas in order to disrupt the buildup of a coalition of a Western Israeli Sunni coalition against the rising Iranian, uh, Chinese, Russian uh, front that has emerged in the Middle East. They wanted to keep Hezbollah intact in order to defend themselves. But now they are in a dilemma because we are going in, we are going to destroy Hamas and they need to decide what to do with Hezbollah. Now there are several things that are keeping Hezbollah at leash. It's Iranian interest, it's also inner Lebanese issue. The Lebanese don't want a war. We are in full capacity. All our army is uh, drafted and we are in high readiness. And also warships, American warships. America understands that this is a global war. This is why they are involved and are ready to pose a credible military threat on Iran and Hezbollah. Having said all of that, and although there are many reasons why Hezbollah wouldn't start a war with Israel in the north, there are also reasons why they would. So it's very, very complicated. I've, thinking, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot in the last few days, and I don't have one clear answer. What, what, where is this is going, the northern border? At the moment, we're on defense. We're uh, coping with uh, local terror attacks, some anti-tank missiles, most of them targeting our uh, army, our forces. But we understand that while we're going in to destroy Hamas, we might find ourselves also in a full-scale war on our northern border. And Israel has evacuated areas of these closed military zones, forcing residents out of there. But this is the biggest evacuation more within the confines of Israel itself. So what do you think is going to happen here? I mean, one Lebanese civilian has already been killed in a conflict. Do you think adjustments are needed to the Israeli strategy on that front? Well, at the moment, we are concentrating on Gaza and defending in the north. It might change. We are uh, All our forces uh, of the Northern Command are ready to attack also in Lebanon if needed. 
But this is up to Iran and this is up to Hezbollah. If they want to go to war, this is the moment for us also and we'll go to war. Uh, we are not going to initiate this war in uh, Lebanon. This is up to Iran and Hezbollah. And if they initiate a war, they will find a, a reality where they'll find themselves exactly like Hamas, being destroyed. Let's talk about the Jabalia refugee camp. A Hamas-run interior ministry says that there was an Israeli airstrike on it. Is this more propaganda or is there any truth to this? Well, we have seen endless amount of propaganda uh, on part of Hamas. I wouldn't believe even a word they're saying. Uh, we are hitting military targets. We have good intelligence uh, talking about where uh, the headquarters, the infrastructure, the terrorists are. The Air Force is constantly attacking, but it's always according to very accurate intelligence. And all our munition is also very accurate. So we are... Uh, De degregating their capabilities before the ground uh, incursion. And once we feel that that's the right time, uh, we'll witness hundreds of thousands of Israeli soldiers attacking uh, and destroying Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Can you give us a little more insight as to how the IDF manages to take out its targets while preserving the lives of innocent civilians? So we did several things, you know, one thing is telling the citizens, we sent pamphlets, we phone calls, telling them move south, move south to the area of El Muasi. El Muasi is the area where the Jewish towns were before, Gush Katif, and almost all the, the civilians have evacuated the northern part of the Gaza Strip. So this keeps them safe. There they can also get uh, food, water, all in the south of Gaza. So in the north of Gaza, mostly terrorists and terror infrastructure. And this gives us a more fear ability to, to really operate aggressively uh, while keeping safe our soldiers once they are going to go in. The refugee situation here is complicated. Some Gazans don't want to flee. Others are concerned that if they do flee to countries like Egypt, if the Rafah Gate is open and they do accept them, then Israel may not allow these people back in is something that may have been historically happened in the past. So is there any guarantee that these refugees would be allowed back into Palestine? Well, we're not them. We don't we are a democratic country. We act according to Western values. We think that the right thing at the moment for them is to move out of the war zone. We have seen, for example, in Ukraine, millions that wanted to go out and indeed the European uh, countries opened their borders. Now we have Egypt locking them inside the war zone. I don't think any Western country can agree to something like that. We need Egypt to open the border and let anybody who wants to go, they don't need to go, nobody's forcing them. But many people do want to leave, do want to go for a certain period of time to the Sinai Peninsula, be safe. There it's easier also to take care of them humanitarily. And when the war will be over, they can, call, they can come back to their homes. That is some reassurance there. Brigadier General Amir Avivi, the founder and chairman of Israel Defense and Security Forum, thank you for the updates. My pleasure. Thank you very much.
And here in New York City, hundreds of people gathered in Times Square yesterday to demand the release of hostages taken by Hamas. U.S. officials say nearly 200 people are held captive after the terrorist group's October 7th attack. The State Department confirmed 32 Americans are dead. The rally was organized by the nonprofit Israeli American Council. It represents Israeli Americans in the U.S. An entity spoke to some of those attending to learn more about the call to action. Billboards in Times Square displayed the faces of those thought to be held hostage by Hamas, from young to old, as the crowd demanded bring them home. Israel's UN Ambassador Gilad Erdan criticized the UN Secretary General in his speech for a planned visit to the Rafah border crossing from Egypt to Gaza Friday. Right now, sadly, tragically, it seems that his top priority is giving aid to the terrorists, to the terrorists who abducted our, our loved ones. Shame on him! Shame on him! Actor Yuval David, a dual Israeli-American citizen, told NTD that terrorist organizations have no place in a civilized society and should be demolished. And it doesn't make sense. That is not freedom fighting. So anybody out there who thinks that you can defend Hamas, that you can defend Hamas as a resistance group, you are horribly wrong. They came for us and they can come for you. Guy Yer came from North Carolina to show his support. First of all, I would like to see all the hostages be returned. I would like to see a good resolution come to both parties to eliminate the bloodshed, the unnecessary bloodshed, and just come to a resolution and put this behind us. The first thing is these hostages need to be released before you can even address resolving the conflict. Certainly violence is not going to in any way resolve it. There has to be rational discussions and ways to go about it. But a resolution doesn't seem likely. Israel has pledged to dismantle Hamas and its military capabilities. Hamas and other affiliated terrorist groups have vowed to destroy Israel with the U.S. posturing naval fleets in the Middle East and readying 2,000 of its best troops for war. Senate leader Chuck Schumer declared the U.S. has Israel's back. We will not abandon you. We will not leave you. We will fight with you side by side until the threat of Hamas is totally eliminated and every hostage is brought home. President Biden is under pressure to leverage every diplomatic tool at his disposal to secure their release. I've actually been very impressed with uh, President Biden's response publicly to everything that's happened. And I think whether you're on the left, you're on the right, you're in the middle, I think everybody has pretty much come together to universally support Israel in the face of terrorists. Just everything that's happened is unspeakable and President Biden and pretty much, every, pretty much everyone in, uh, in the American government has been very staunch supporting Israel. We're going to do whatever it takes. Israel has the right to defend themselves, which they do. Um, and it makes us all very proud to be not just Jews, but Americans as well. Senator Jim Risch, the top Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said Wednesday that 10 of the Hamas hostages were U.S. citizens. No official list of U.S. hostages has been released. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Congressman Jordan just finished holding a press conference at the Capitol. He spoke on the upcoming vote for House Speaker and the important work that needs to be done. Take a look. we got important work to do. Important work to do. We need to help Israel. 
We need to get the appropriations process moving so that the key elements of our government are funded and funded in the right way, particularly our military. We need to get back to our committee work. And frankly, we need to continue the oversight work that I think is so darn important. In short, we need to get to work for the American people. We need to do what we said we were going to do. We need to do what we told them we were going to do when they elected us and put us in office. And frankly, we can't do that if the House isn't open. And if the, we, can't, we can't open the House until we get a speaker. Jordan plans to stay in the race for speaker as House Republicans remain divided. The House will meet to vote today at 10 a.m. Eastern. All right, and this is the spot where we have to wrap up our show today, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information on the war. So stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.